this uh, first panel really carries forward the discussion the senator had started on um, uh, development uh, options and opportunities and challenges in, in Alaska. And we really thought it would be important to focus on that to bring some of these issues to, to light. We've got a great panel here that will help uh, lead us through that discussion. Um, our first speaker, and I'll walk through each of the speakers, and that way we don't have to have a, an interruption in between, and, and the bios uh, you should have available, is Lieutenant Governor Mead Treadwell. Um, he, the, uh, Governor Treadwell was elected and came to office, uh, was elected in November of 2010. 2010, right, yeah, gotta put my glasses on. Um, and had previously served with the Alaska as the head of the Alaska Research Commission. So he's very familiar with the issues in terms of the environmental development, uh, environmental issues, research issues that we were uh, hearing about before. But in earlier uh, work, he was also involved in the infrastructure side, looking at the possibilities of development of Alaskan gas for um, uh, sale within the state and sale on international international markets, so I think his familiarity on both those topics will be important. Uh, the second speaker will be uh, Peter Slivey, who is Vice President for Shell Alaska Exploration and Appraisal, um, who's going to describe their approach to uh, development and uh, how they would face this challenge that the Senator, I think, quite accurately noted that a major accident may be the end, um, at least for the time horizon we're all looking at of development in Alaska. So they have a special responsibility to make certain that they don't have that situation. Um, Peter comes with an extensive background worldwide, having worked in um, the North Sea, uh, worked in uh, all over the world, really, I think, Peter, and looking at your, your bio here. And then our final speaker is Admiral Thomas Barrett, who is bringing to the discussion something that I think is quite critical to better understand, which is what's the future for the Alyeska pipeline, um, given the pathway we're on in terms of production. Now, watching the North Slope uh, production declining, there's been a lot of discussion about the fact that this we may hit a point in time of uh, flow rates that this pipeline has to be shut in. And I think it's, it's really important to understand what those uh, drivers are that will um, result in that and the importance of keeping this piece of infrastructure going in the, uh, as we look forward to development. Um, Admiral Barrett also brings a very background um, in Alaska, having served as with the Coast Guard there. He's also de Deputy Commandant for the Coast Guard and Deputy Secretary of Transportation. And perhaps fittingly, was the first administrator of FEMSA, the Pipeline uh, uh, Hazardous Materials and Safety Administration, which has been in the news quite a bit lately, um, looking at different pipeline issues. So I think this panel will um, uh, really give us an excellent overview on uh, issues related to Alaskan um, oil development. Now, a couple of things administratively I, I didn't jump into right away. If you can please turn your cell phones to, to silent so that we don't uh, have too many disruptions. In fact, I better do the same thing. Um, when we get to the question uh, period, if you can please identify yourself and then also frame what you have to say um, in the form of a question so that we can kind of keep on, on track. If you have a speech to make, uh, make, it, make it short and end it with a, with a question mark. So I think with those guidelines, um, uh, Governor Treadwell. Good morning. I woke up in the hills of West Virginia this morning where uh, secretaries of state from all over the country are gathering and the newspaper on the way in had probably nine articles in it about uh, the 
environmental challenges of a Marcellus shale. <laughs> Uh, so to begin a talk, uh, a day uh, talking about Arctic oil and gas, uh, looking at the environmental arguments, I guess uh, what I can say is that what's happening in the Arctic is happening other places in the country. We're all facing the challenges of safe environment and development, but I think Americans are increasingly dedicated to the issue or to the idea, the proposition that uh, we should produce more of our energy at home. And what I'm here to do this morning in a panel that is going to talk about both the energy infrastructure that we have in Alaska, as well as the energy potential, is try to give you an overview on, on the part of the state of Alaska of where we're going and the, uh, the approach that Governor Par uh, Parnell is taking. Um, Alaska, you may recall, was, uh, was the subject of great debate when it was being purchased by the United States in 1867. The New York Sun said at the time that most of the resources that were good to get out of Alaska were already gotten, that we were a sucked orange. Uh, the other term given to us that uh, besides Seward's folly that I've always loved is Walrussia. Uh, but uh, what we got was a territory that's twice the size of Texas, larger than all but 18 sovereign nations, with more coastline than all the other U.S. states combined, and I believe that puts us and our good senator, who you heard from this morning, in a good position to make arguments for law of the sea. Half the world's glaciers, large amount of fresh water, and yet the least densely populated U.S. state. It also, as Senator Murkowski said, made us an Arctic nation. It put us in a circumpolar neighborhood. And uh, with the Arctic oil, we got 13% of the world's uh, resources uh, that are yet undiscovered in the Arctic, 23% of the world's gas. And uh, if there's anything new that's happening in a discussion on Arctic oil and gas, I think it's that we have a new ocean, we have a new neighborhood, we have new prospects, uh, we have new technologies, and today I believe you'll hear about a new approach. Uh, if you take a look at the potential in this USGS study, you'll see that the darkest blue is the highest probability, and uh, the six nations which Senator Murkowski talked about, uh, besides Alaska for the United States, Russia, uh, Norway, Iceland, Canada, uh, 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 and Greenland or Denmark are all right now doing offshore oil and gas exploration uh, and all significant for the future of the world's energy supply. So what we do here, we do together. Uh, we also, in this context of a new ocean, uh, I wanted to show you that since the multi-year ice, a large portion of multi-year ice left the Arctic Ocean in 2007, uh, we've seen a lot of work in this neighborhood on safe shipping. And you can't talk about Arctic oil and gas without also being aware of what's happening in shipping. I like to tell people that this, uh, this document, uh, some of which are on the outside table, Fran Ulmer is here, who's the chair of the Arctic Research Commission. When I was chair, uh, uh, we helped sponsor the Arctic Marine Shipping Assessment. And for, if you think about it, for a thousand years, governments have been looking at the Arctic Ocean as a near route between Asia and Europe. And for the first time in human history, eight nations came together with this marine shipping assessment and said, how do we sh do shipping safely? And the agenda uh, on shipping before we get to oil and gas is significant. After uh, AMSA, the nations are now going to the International Maritime Organization to make sure that the ships that are built to ply Arctic waters are built safely with high standards to make the Polar Code mandatory. The agreement which Senator Murkowski talked about 
uh, for search and rescue, the first binding agreement in the Arctic uh, to have us get together to make that ocean safe. The spill agreement that is being negotiated now will be uh, as a result of a task force uh, th that's going on to make sure that there's much stronger cooperation on, on oil spills, for both for shipping and any production that happens there. And then finally, the uh, proposed project in the Sustainable Development Working Group. Uh, I see Paul Cunningham, who's uh, uh, chair of the U.S. delegation on that, where we're looking at the infrastructure needs. Besides that, the Arctic policy, which President Bush signed and the uh, current administration is working to implement, is also concerned with uh, safe, secure, and reliable shipping. The Committee on Marine Transportation Services is charged by law with helping to develop an appropriate regime. The state of Alaska is working with the Corps of, uh, the Corps of Engineers on new port, uh, new Arctic ports for the Arctic. And finally, we continue the work on trying to get icebreakers and trying to get Law of the Sea passed. So there's quite a bit going with this new ocean. On June 30th, uh, Governor Parnell uh, spoke to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce here about a goal which he had set on March 30th to uh, see if we could raise production in Alaska up to a million barrels a day. A million barrels a day, that goal was set the very same day in March that President Obama announced the goal of reducing the 11 million barrels of oil that we import daily by one-third. And we feel that Alaska can have a significant contribution, uh, about one-sixth of that contribution uh, uh, of the new production that the President wants to see uh, in the United States. You'll hear from Tom, Barrell about, uh, from, from Tom Barrett about the TAPS pipeline. Uh, TAPS throughput decline, we're now under 600,000 barrels a day. This is the pipeline that was carrying 2 million barrels a day uh, at its height. And it has a significant potential yet to carry much, much more oil. And, though th uh, and uh, Tom will let you know what's happening here but it's very imperative on the part of the state of Alaska. There's no other source of revenue that we see that can replace the 90-plus percent of state revenues we receive from oil production through this pipeline, a significant portion of the oil produced in the United States. And fortunately, the North Slope uh, of Alaska is a world-class energy basin with more oil than any other Arctic nation. And to take all the numbers that you'll hear thrown around today, Think of it this way, that the Arctic region has over 40 billion barrels of oil and 236 trillion cubic feet of natural gas on the North Slope and the Outer Continental Shelf that could come through that pipeline. That pipeline has produced and or has, has carried production of just over, uh, slightly over 15 billion barrels to date. And there are tens of billions of barrels additionally of heavy oil, uh, shale oil, and other conventional resources. Now, with all that resource, there's not much going on in the way of exploration. We're relatively underexplored, with 500 exploration wells on the North Slope compared to 19,000, for example, in Wyoming. Uh, a strategy that Governor Parnell announced on June 30th is, has five parts to uh, get to that million barrel a day goal. And I won't read the five uh, items in front of you on the slide, but basically I want to talk about what we're doing under number three to facilitate and incentivize the next phases of North Slope development. Uh, the next phase of North Slope development includes several different kinds of resources. You'll hear from Pete uh, about the Outer Continental Shelf, which we see as significant. You'll hear from me about federal onshore resources, the National Petroleum Reserve Alaska, 
in the Anwar 1002 area. You should hear from all of us, and we should all be focusing on the heavy, viscous, and shale oil potential on the North Slope and the Central North Slope and what we're doing with a lease sale that's scheduled in October. Uh, there are others, many other smaller pools of conventional oil, and then, of course, commercialization of North Slope gas is important. I was telling David this morning as I came in, the very first time I ever visited uh, CSIS was in 1982 with then former Governor Wally Hickel. Uh, we came to see David Abshire about commercializing North Slope gas. It's kind of scary that that was 1982. We're going to talk about it again today. But if you bring Alaska's five-part strategy down to one word, it's access. Uh, we're, we're certainly in Washington looking for legal access to our resources. You'll see us in, in Juneau appropriating money, doing a lot of work to see where we can get physical access to our resources. And that's not just roads to resources to some of the prospects uh, off the uh, Hall Road uh, in the NPRA and uh, south of NPRA. It's also working with the Coast Guard and others on the shipping studies that we mentioned so that there's ports, so that there's icebreakers, aids to commerce, to make sure that we've got physical access to the resources. I, we talked about research. Senator Murkowski talked about research. Intellectual access to these resources is also very important. You can't get what you have until you know what you have. You can't get what you have until you know how to do it safely. It's very important that we continue to push to, to move the edge of the envelope on oil spill prevention and response in the Arctic, for example. It's very important that we continue to push to make the sustained Arctic observing network and the basic uh, uh, biological and ecological studies happen on the North Slope. And you'll see us pushing for that kind of intellectual access to the Arctic. But finally, and this is something that Washington has to remember, is you can't just wait till Washington says yes or no, and that's not the only thing that has to happen. You also have to get access to capital. We have to be competitive in a global marketplace in raising capital to come up to the North Slope. And if you think about it, the assessed value of, resource, uh, of the resource production capability on the North Slope right now is about $16 billion. That's the tax base of the North Slope borough. To get to a million barrels a day, we may have to double or triple that. That's a huge amount of investment of capital in the United States that's necessary to, to, to come to the table. And that's the challenge. So it, Washington is not the last word, it's the first word. We get the first words here with the regulatory certainty that we're working on, and then we have to go out and attract the money. Uh, I want to just make the point very strongly that Alaska has very strong environmental standards. I believe we have a strong record of responsibly developing our resources while protecting our environment. We have a powerhouse university in the Arctic uh, region that's a leader in environmental research. And many people wondered uh, when the TAPS pipeline went in of what that would do to the caribou herds on the North Slope, and those actually have uh, grown dramatically over the last 30 years from 5,000 in 1975 to over 66,000 today. It's a very important part of our Constitution. We have dual goals of resource development and environmental protection in our Constitution. We have a rigorous state uh, environmental program that requires best interest findings, and we have interactions between state and federal agencies to guarantee consistency in environmental protection. Uh, one of the things that we are very proud of is North Slope drill site uh, evolution over recent years. As you can see on the, uh, on the uh, left in the handout you have is that we've seen the size of drill sites for the number of wells drilled uh, decrease dramatically over time to the point that uh, 
1970, Prudhoe drill site number one was 65 acres, 34 wellheads. Uh, now you can see the Alpine drill site in 1999, 11 acres, 64 wellheads at 10 foot spacing. And the size of the well pads to get onshore exploration and development happening is shrinking. We also have very significant uh, new, um, uh, new techniques that are coming along for winter exploration, winter ice roads, and so forth to reduce the footprint there. Um, before I uh, get to this, let me, let me just uh, also say that uh, the governor announced a lease sale on October 26th of this year. The state of Alaska will put up land for exploration that is equal in size to the states of Massachusetts, Vermont, and Connecticut. Uh, there will be 576 tracks in the Beaufort, 1,225 uh, tracks on the North Slope, and 1,347 tracks on the North Slope foothills. Uh, what we hope to see there is more interest, more exploration uh, in the areas of the state that, that have got both the small oil fields, the viscous oil fields, and some of the areas that have straddling reserves on the edges of NPRA and ANWR. And we're very interested in attracting uh, investment and uh, development now. We see dozens of pools of conventional oil of 50 to 150 million barrels, tens of billions of heavy or viscous oil, uh, perhaps on the central north slope, three to six billion barrels uh, in this lease sale to be covered, 24 to 45 trillion cubic feet of natural gas. This is in addition to the five billion plus barrels of reserves that are already in existence on leased land in Alaska, already con confirmed in, in, in existence. So this uh, lease sale on October 26th is scheduled to be the largest in the United States. I think it doesn't have to be the largest in the United States. We'd like to challenge our federal friends to, to, uh, uh, to, to beat us on that number. But the point is, is that we are aggressively going out and seeking investment right now. Uh, finally, I guess I'd like to say is at $100 a barrel, going to a million barrels a day, think about the economic significance of that. At $100 a barrel, Alaska oil is a real stimulus to the U.S. economy. And here in Washington, if you want another stimulus package that doesn't cost the American taxpayers money, that doesn't put us deeper in debt, that doesn't have us borrowing money in Asia to send money to the Middle East, that helps us put more people to work, and more people to work all the way across the country, look at drilling in Alaska. We can play a significant role in the resurgence of the economy in this country. And that's what, uh, uh, that's what you'll see the state of Alaska arguing for. Finally, just going back to the question of whether or not Alaska is a sucked orange. We're not. When you take a look at uh, Alaska's overall resources, the Commissioner of Natural Resources, the governor asked me to remind you that when it comes to coal, We've got about the second highest uh, rate of reserves in the world. Copper, the third largest in the world. Lead, uh, with the largest lead-zinc mine in the world, the sixth most uh, uh, highest concentration of lead in the world. Seventh highest concentration of gold. gold. Eighth largest concentration of zinc and silver. Over 150 elements of rare earth, uh, uh, occurrences of rare earth elements. 17% of U.S. timberland and 40% plus or minus of U.S. Uh, water. 
So we've certainly got a lot of resources to look at. It is very much in Alaska's interest to see these resources developed wisely, and we're very interested in working in partnership with the federal government to see that happen. Finally, because I did mention North Slope natural gas, we've got a huge amount of natural gas on the North Slope. The state is working several different ways. Last week, a study was announced where we're looking at the possibility of an in-state gas pipeline of 500 million feet a day that would require some sort of export market or, or manufacturing use to be economic. The state is looking at that. We've set aside $200 million there plus $30 million to do further assessments this year. Um, the state is continuing on the $500 million assessment to look at a gas pipeline overland to the United States. Uh, and there's also a posted tariff on that proposed pipeline for export to, to Asia. So we're looking at all uh, uh, sources right now to try to get uh, gas to market. So with that, thank you very much. Godspeed in your work, and uh, thank you very much for including thank me you. here today. Pete, uh, want to go ahead? Uh, I, I was just going to add that uh, uh, my experience is similar to yours. I was in the beginning of my career. One of my first jobs was the selection of the uh, transportation system, which I still did not work long enough to see built and still haven't seen built. So uh, that was in the, the mid-70s. So I think we should, 1976, exactly. Sorry. You're making me suffer up here with okay. my IT. Uh, so we, oh, need, a, we, we need some filler? Okay. Oh, there we go. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you very much for that. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm actually down from Alaska trying to uh, warm up a little bit. As Senator Murkowski said, it, uh, it is uh, quite a different climate, uh, but it is good to go to a place where you can cast a shadow. So when we're, when we're, uh, when we're talking about Alaska, it's really difficult uh, to not use a lot of superlatives. So um, if we look at it, it is an extraordinary resource. It's in an undeniably extraordinary setting and to work in Alaska one needs to take extraordinary precautions and as both uh, Lieutenant Governor Treadwell and Senator Murkowski have said clearly issues with assets and uh, infrastructure in Alaska so I would I would add a fourth to my list and that would be it takes extraordinary assets and when one looks at our investment in Alaska we've recognized that there has been issues with resources available and we've made significant investments in, in assets. So what we're looking at on this cover before we begin to move through the slides is a, an anchor handler ice breaking vessel called the Tor Viking. Uh, what you're looking at right now is not where our theater of operation will be, it's, it's Dutch Harbor, Alaska in about, well, December of, uh, of 2010. The uh, Tor Viking uh, was stationed in Dutch, uh, had brought our drilling vessel, the Kulik, down from uh, the Mackenzie Delta in Canada and was uh, beginning a process, or the, the Kulik was beginning a process of overwintering in, uh, in Dutch. And while it was in Dutch in December, it got a distress call working with the Coast Guard, the, uh, the uh, Tor Viking, what we call the Bumblebee, was dispatched and uh, made an extraordinary rescue. A 736-foot uh, Panamax freighter carrying canola oil was beginning to run adrift in the Adak Islands and was was literally uh, about to run into the uh, run into the rocks uh, of Adak. And uh, the the Tor Viking uh, dispatched from Dutch actually 
past the vessels that had been sent uh, previously to rescue the uh, uh, rescue the uh, Golden Seas and was able to attach a line to it in about 12 hours uh, through uh, 40, 45 foot seas, extraordinary seas, extraordinary rescue, and brought the uh, and brought the uh, Golden Seas back into Dutch Harbor and uh, proceeded along with the salvage. So it is it is a question of working in Alaska and continually being prepared, and that's what we've been doing uh, for a lot of the time we have been in Alaska. So. Looking at what our background looks like, well, we have a hundred and I'm giving you a, a snapshot. So I direct people's attention to the lower left-hand side, and in, in, uh, in looking at where we are, as, as Lieutenant Governor Treadwell was talking about, it's a state of extraordinary size. And what we're looking at right now is the Beaufort Sea leases. Shell, each one of these little blocks is about three miles by three miles. Shell has 137 leases in the Beaufort, and you can see there's a fair amount of other players. In the in the Beaufort, in, in areas that have been uh, been uh, under development or under excuse me under development under exploration for some time now, if one looks at the Chuck Chi, um, the Chuck Chi is part of a, again a, a lease sale that uh, occurred in 2008. This was at the time, and everybody uh, was actually properly shocked at the moment, the largest lease sale that had ever been conducted by what was then the MMS. As a matter of fact. Uh, in February 2008, when the lease sale was going on, the uh, then director of uh, the MMS in, in Alaska literally had to take his glasses off after reading the bids uh, for about 10 minutes and said, I just can't believe this. $2.6 billion were exposed or, or in, in high bids were accepted during the lease sale uh, in a lease sale that was expected to take something like around $50 million. So there is a, there is a prize over there, and of course what people can uh, can uh, discuss is that uh, these uh, this is real real and significant money. Uh, we have had, and I think it's worth saying, a number of years of of successful exploration seismic acquisition. And and when one looks at where we're you know our our big headline is well you've not been able to drill an Alaska shell, but industry has been able to acquire seismic. And as a matter of fact, it's hugely significant for shell for two reasons. When one tallies the number of leases that we have now in Alaska, it's about equivalent to the number of leases we hold in the Gulf of Mexico. And we are the second largest leaseholder in the Gulf. I will also say that one, one looks at the seismic activity we, done, we have done in Alaska, and we, we acquired seismic for three years, seven, eight, and nine. Uh, it's the largest exploration seismic uh, Shell has ever acquired anywhere worldwide in a hundred years of history so this is uh, this is very big but again the clock is ticking the uh, you know issues can turn on a dime and uh, you know we saw the last jump in oil price had a number of people talking about use it or lose it well we've been uh, whoops we've held these leases for a number of years and uh, it, is, it is now indeed time to begin to drill because you, you really can't uh, determine if you have a resource on seismic alone. So Shell's been operating in Alaska uh, for over 50 years. We took a brief exit in 1998 and came back in 2005. We were the first royalty pair to the state of Alaska with our Cook Inlet uh, uh, fields. So those Cook Inlet fields were put in place in 1964 
uh, and are still producing today. Uh, Shell put the first two in, and I think it's an extraordinary uh, story. So when one talks about specifically the Beaufort and the Chuck Chi, it's always tempting to say, well, this is, uh, this is a frontier. People have never been here before. And actually, it, it's, it's not true. There have been some 30 wells drilled in the Alaskan Beaufort, uh, 93 wells drilled in the Canadian Beaufort, and five wells drilled in the uh, Chukchi Sea. And as you can see from the tie line, there's some overlap. Those wells were drilled 20 years ago. One of the greatest compliments anybody can, uh, can pay uh, an, uh, a person who works for an oil company is, well, we didn't know you were out there. And, you know, I think that's, that's really good, and, and that's kind of what I'm trying to do again. I, uh, I recognize that we, we have processes, but when you can run and run an operation and have no impact, that's what we have been indeed looking to do. So what are our plans in, in 2012? Well, we are planning on drilling three wells in the Chukchi, up to three wells. Uh, we have a very limited season where we can drill. We literally uh, would be able to start sometime around the middle part of July, about this time. Uh, and statutorily, we have to complete our wells by the 31st of October. Um, we were not allowed to transit through the Bering Straits until the 1st of July. So we're bracketed by a very, very small and finite open water season. And when we look at how that will work, uh, we f feel like three wells in the, in the Chukchi m would be possible uh, given weather conditions. Two wells in the Beaufort, and why less wells in the Beaufort? Because there will be more ice in the Beaufort, and we've talked about ice conditions, but the Beaufort still contains more ice. Uh, multi-year as well as, as first year and it will all be dependent not so much on individual temperatures but the way the wind blows and when the wind blows the wrong way we'll have ice ice in place um, so we will be operating with two drilling rigs one in the Beaufort one in the Chukchi there's about 400 miles of separation between those two areas but an opportunity for us to share some common uh, resources so materially, I've talked about an extraordinary prize. What is the size of the prize? And both uh, Senator Murkowski and Lieutenant Governor Treadwell have talked about what can be, uh, you know, what is available in the, in the Arctic. And these are USGS numbers, but it's, it's roughly uh, 25 billion barrels of oil, 127 trillion cubic feet of, of, of gas. And, you know, when one looks at the overall size of the prize in the Arctic, uh, People talk about, in rough numbers, about a quarter of the world's unproven or yet to be discovered reserves. And if you look at that one quarter, I think simplistically uh, the Alaskan offshore probably holds a quarter of a quarter. So it does look, when one looks at where we are, we're, we're blessed in that uh, particular area uh, for, uh, for the uh, areas that uh, have become Alaska. We've recently, and I say we've recently, commissioned a, uh, a study through the University of Alaska, ISER in Northern Economics, about what is, you know, what's in it for the state and a, as a broader view, what's in it for the, for the country. And we have looked, you know, most critically at this juncture at jobs. And I think the numbers are fairly conservative, but uh, looking at 54,000 jobs averaged over a 50-year time frame, and of course, the peak number of uh, jobs created would be well over 100,000, which is really not a hard, uh, hard thing for those people who live through the Trans-Alaskan Pipeline in Alaska to, uh, to uh, remember. It's $145 billion in payroll. Uh, 
But I think another important number, and I don't have this in the slide, is the amount of money it throws off to the government with respect to taxes and royalty. And it, oil prices that are 50 percent below what we're paying today, or what you would pay today, it throws off something like $200 billion into the government coffers. So if you look at a $100 a barrel price, what we've got today, there's significant improvement. And Admiral Barrett will be talking a little bit about TAPS, and we've, we've looked at what we think could be reasonably averaged over a number of years, given the USGS numbers. I emphasize these are USGS numbers. Something like 700,000 barrels would not be uh, um, untoward, and, and actually peak numbers at well over a million barrels a day. So what are the challenges? And of course, you, you can't walk off a podium like this without being able to talk, and, and, and rightly, and having to talk literally about uh, the challenges. And of course, oil spill um, is, is a big issue. And, and I talked about our lease bonus and what we've spent on that and the, the billions that were put up. We have invested an almost equal amount to putting assets into place. And as we talked about, uh, fully recognizing that we would be working in Alaska without the benefit of huge amounts of, of resources that are deployed in places like the Gulf of Mexico or the North Sea, we've had to use operating models like we have used in other parts of the world, which means that we've, uh, we're deploying assets and bringing those assets uh, up to the uh, theater with us. So what are those assets around, uh, about? And you can see on the uh, lower right-hand picture the vessel Nanook, that's an oil spill response vessel. It's polar class, built to work in ice. Um, uh, was put put into use or put into commission in 2007. It's set up to actually operate around one of the drilling rigs. We'll have another another oil spill response vessel around the second rig. It will be on site and working within 60 minutes. Now that's a promise we have made in our contingency plan. It's a promise that was in place before the Deepwater Horizon incident. Uh, and it, it is uh, around, built around a, a three-tiered system of assets, both offshore, nearshore, and onshore, that uh, we believe are absolutely essential to doing any kind of exploration activity in the Arctic. In other words, I, I've, I've put it this way. Um, we will never see in the Arctic uh, an optic like we saw in the Gulf of Mexico with 5,000 vessels of opportunity and skimmers deployed trying to run after oil, uh, streams of oil in the, in the Arctic. We've had to build, and we've recognized this from the very beginning, oil spill response capacity that centers on the source and does everything it can to make sure that the, uh, that the oil does not leave the vicinity of the well. And with the well, in 150 feet of water and in the conditions we got with the pressures, it's eminently doable. And what you're seeing on the upper right hand is a uh, trial burn that took place the summer before last in Svalbard in Norway as part of a SINTEF trial. After the uh, BP Macondo incident, we, we've had to relook as well at what were the learnings that came out of that, and I think we've made an already robust program more robust. What you're seeing uh, here are a couple things. Uh, uh, up on the upper right-hand side, a capping system. When this was deployed in the Gulf of Mexico at the end of July, it was literally game over for the spill. It was the, uh, actually the defining moment when oil was, uh, was uh, contained and eventually the well was stopped. 
we've committed to put a capping system in place in Alaska, in the Arctic Oceans, between the Beaufort and the, and the Chukchi Seas from the very start of our operations. In other words, when the drilling rigs start the wells, the, uh, the capping system will be available. Below you see the, uh, actually the bottom part of the uh, containment system, and that's of course being now put together in the Gulf of Mexico. But we've also committed to build an, an Arctic-class containment system, which is really a barge to be able to process any of the oil and gas that uh, might come to the surface. We've also done a number of things, and I think everybody became a drilling engineer last summer. It uh, put me on notice. But we've, uh, we've agreed as well to put a, in a second set of uh, shear rams into our blowout preventer, as well as increased test frequencies and a number of other issues around the control panel. We do have a, over a century of data on the science, and I think we've, we've said uh, a number of times that there have been studies and that we feel that the science is indeed adequate for exploration uh, activities. We've said, and we are actually uh, in, in the process of gaining more science for the potential of a development. A development is uh, very different than exploration drilling in three months of open water season in the summer. So we are busily now acquiring data. We're working with stakeholders to acquire data that they may think is important to sustain the subsistence lifestyles that they lead. We are working as well with stakeholders. We've literally had uh, 400 uh, meetings with stakeholders since 2007. So we are, if we're not drilling, we are clearly burning up a lot of air miles getting into different communities. And we've listened to what stakeholders have said. And I think by far and large, I won't make a, a statement that everybody agrees with Shell and offshore activity being there. But I do think we have taken the time to listen and explain. And we've made significant changes to our programs as a result of the input that we've gotten from these stakeholders. Finally, um, you know, it's, it's a bit of an ominous slide. Uh, the ramp-up costs are really significant. So the, the amount of money we are spending in preparation because of this infrastructure issue is significant. We have a, a gauntlet of permits to run through, some 35 permits, about a dozen of them are very, very significant. Uh, and we have to bat 1,000 to be able to go to work. So we've got to get everything in place to go. Uh, we'll be watching our permits very closely, and uh, we are, are looking as well for um, the uh, help that uh, we can get in moving the discussion along and the engagements that we're having with different people on, on where we want to go, how move forward. So thank you very much, David, for the uh, effort. Thanks, Pete. Uh, great presentation. Um, so our, our last speaker for the panel is Admiral Barrett, um, and sort of been uh, a lot of things have been uh, uh, mentioned that you're going to be bringing up. So uh, yeah. hopefully, yeah, it's always yeah. bad to be the last panelist. Everyone's uh, deferring to you. And you're going to yeah. save time here by getting me to my presentation <laughs> instead of letting me fumble through. So. Yeah, and I just need to to advance it. The down key. Yep. Okay. So good morning, David. Thank you, and uh, thanks for the opportunity to be with you. And I'm delighted, actually, to be here, talk a little bit about Alaska Pipeline and Trans-Alaska Pipeline and uh, the implications that it has. You know, uh, Alaska is the, the uh, company that uh, designed and built and now operates and maintains uh, TAPS, Trans-Alaska Pipeline. Um, it's a very large, it's a 48-inch line, crude oil line, uh, since startup in 1977 
As you've heard, uh, we've moved over 16 billion barrels of oil from the north slope of Alaska to the ice-free port of Valdez. Today we transport about 620,000 barrels on average a day. This morning we moved 555,000 the last 24 hours. Our flow is a little lower in the summer with when maintenance and repair goes on, not just on our line but also on the wells and the production facilities up on the slopes. So our flow is typically a little higher in the winter. Um, but that's significant. That's 11 percent of U.S. domestic oil supplies uh, at any given point in time. So we make a substantial contribution uh, to U.S. energy supplies and to American economic health. And I think perhaps uh, ask you to consider the TAPS may be a useful barometer uh, as you think about assessing uh, the vitality of those energy supplies and our economic health. So in 1988, we delivered 2.1 million barrels a day, and our throughput's been steadily declining since then. Now I'm going to put up a slide here, I'll walk you through, and talk a little bit about the history and what TAPS looks like. Um, Come through a little. This, this uh, I'll leave up. This is kind of the picture of our our flow. Uh, you can see at startup we were about 700,000 barrels a day, moved up to uh, 2.1 million around 1988. We have been on a steady decline uh, since then. Uh, the last couple of years, averaging five to seven percent a year, and our decline has exceeded uh, most predictions uh, in terms of what flow is coming in. And I'm going to talk to uh, what you see the projection in the future there of some of the challenges we face from declining flow. And I'll come back and talk about that, but I'll just leave the slide up. So when TAPS was built, it was the largest construction project of its time, cost $8 billion, stretches 800 miles, 800 miles, that's a long line, across some of the most rugged and most challenging terrain in the United States. Um, it's uh, Alaska, as you know, is by far, I think Mead mentioned, Alaska, America's largest state. TAPS crosses the entire state, north to south, uh, from Arctic to open water. Um, it's half below ground, half above ground. Uh, a lot of that design has to do with seismic considerations. Uh, it was built uh, to withstand uh, earthquakes, and in fact, in 19 or 2002, November 2002, it successfully withstood a 7.9 Richter scale earthquake, uh, performing as designed. Um, it also doesn't just represent uh, really what is an engineering marvel uh, and feat. It also represented a feat of political will uh, back at the time. In the 1970s, it took an act of Congress to move TAPS ahead. Uh, the deciding vote had to be cast by the Vice President at the time. It was that close in the Senate. Um, America did need to access its energy resources. And subsequent to that activity, that political vote and that construction, we've successfully delivered North Slope crude for more than 34 years and strengthening both the Alaska and American economies. Today, Alieska TAPS, we employ about 800 men and women. We typically have about 1,000 baseline contractors working in addition at any point in time. Numbers fluctuate a little up and down. Um, point I want to make to you, though, is this team knows how to operate in the Arctic, um, and I'd match them against anybody, any place I've been. Uh, they're dedicated. Uh, they're expert. They're very proud of the work they do moving oil. A lot of people that move oil draw a lot of criticism. Uh, my workforce is very proud of the work they do. Uh, they're proud to be Arctic and cold weather experts. They're proud to be problem solvers. And they're proud of the contribution they make to our company, but also to the state of Alaska and to this nation every day. Uh, we benefit from their skills and that can-do attitude enormously. Uh, last January, we had an unplanned shutdown caused by a leak into containment at Pump Station 1 at Prudhoe. Uh, some of you are familiar with that. Uh, despite very harsh conditions and very challenging logistics, uh, not a drop of oil reached the ground. 
and our personnel rapidly, very rapidly carried out a very complicated repair in Arctic winter conditions. That's constant darkness. That's 20 to 30 below Fahrenheit temperatures. Some of those temperatures were inside buildings, by the way. We had temperatures inside a building, uh, our pump station, because we had to ventilate the building to, to uh, take care of hydrocarbon vapors. Um, and they worked 12-hour shifts and did it for days on end. Um, uh, they brought what, uh, what I like to call Alaskan true grit, right? You've, you've seen the movies, uh, to bear. Um, they successfully completed a bypass uh, pipe project that would have typically taken um, oh, months if we just planned it regularly and routinely. They did it in nine days. Um, quality of the work was superb. Um, as an example, I like to cite uh, we had uh, this workforce, right, uh, did 22 field wells up at Pump Station 1 in these subarctic 20 to 30 below conditions. Every single one of those wells passed x-ray the first time. And whatever business you're in, that's extraordinary performance by any measure. The workforce up there is talented. Um, and I, I just... Um, when I listen to some of the discussion, and, and, but people have commented a, a little bit today, it kind of talks like the Arctic is a new frontier. Um, some government agencies are just trying to start to understand. I can tell you that Alieska personnel have worked successfully in the Arctic for 34 years. They're very good at it and they're very proud of it. There's a lot of expertise up there that I think is sometimes not acknowledged. Um, I appreciated the question on the education, too, from a little different perspective. Um, June 20th was the 34th anniversary of TAP startup, right? I sent out a note to 32 of my employees congratulating them for having been with the company for those 34 years, okay? They're not going to be there in 10 years. My workforce issue is replacing those employees. And uh, we're a very strong program with the university. Okay? We very strongly support uh, what's known as the Alaska Native Science and Engineering Program. But getting the workforce of the future developed, and this is a technical workforce, whether they're technicians or engineers, into place is a concern of mine. I think it's an issue for the state. I think it's an issue for the country uh, because I, I think it does need attention. And, but that's kind of my little take on that. It's just I've got a great workforce, but um, a lot of them aren't going to be here. They're like me. Their hair's gray. You know, it's kind of like mine. So um, in any case, so, so where are we, though? Um, you know, it, the contributions have been enormous. You've heard some of that, but I just want to mention the people side of it. We contribute uh, TAPS flow, 90% of Alaska's operating budget, but it also really transformed Alaska from a frontier state uh, where a lot of people, including uh, in, in our villages, live without running water, without indoor plumbing, uh, into a very different, very different state. We have a strong economy. Uh, we have unique and special outdoor recreational opportunities, and we have many, many enhanced opportunities for our residents, a population uh, over 600,000 people now. But that also includes the people of our unique and very well respected in the state Alaska Native cultures. It's a unique state with a unique opportunity. But a lot of it has been built on the, on the basis of the oil and gas development industry that's been up there and the oil that moves down our line. Our unemployment rate is uh, substantially lower than the United States as a whole. And, you know, and up and down the line, I heard that, uh, I think it was Pete mentioned some of the benefits. The United States. You know, I know I go up and down the line a lot. I see a lot of yellow gear, I'm thinking, came out of Peoria, Illinois. You know, our, our, uh, you look at the bulldozers and the earth movers and stuff like that. It's coming from the rest of this country, a lot of it. And, and the impacts, the ripple effects of, of uh, development up there is, is substantial. So today we have new challenges, and that's really what I'm focused on. We've experienced steadily declining throughput, uh, 5 to 7% annually recently. This is caused by uh, aging fields, right? The Prudhoe Bay oil fields are aging. 
and there hasn't been development of equivalent replacement. It just has not, the drilling is not taking place, the bringing additional resources on, online has not, and the rate of decline has is, is, uh, been exceeded. And I think unless political will changes, it's going to continue, and that's what we're basing uh, on our, uh, our projections on. So we're a, a large warm oil pipeline. Oil enters the line at about 108 degrees up at Prudhoe, exits in Valdez about 45, somewhere in that range. Particularly in an Arctic climate, we have steadily declining temperatures down the line. Um, declining throughput because of that has very serious operational consequences for us. Uh, we, if you can look, we've not routinely operated, particularly in winter, below uh, 600,000 barrels. We're below where this line started. So every day we're kind of in new territory. Uh, running at the numbers we're running now. I think the original design, original engineers, they never thought too much about flow below 500,000 barrels a day. So two weeks ago, we completed a release, uh, $10 million low flow study. It was a multi-year effort. It's up on our website, uh, alieskapipeline.com. You can take a read at it. Um, it essentially found that the more flow declines, the more numerous and complex our operational challenges become. So what are we talking about here? Well, at lower and therefore slower flow, we used to run about four miles an hour. Now we're down to two and we're heading slower. Uh, water that's typically entrained in crude uh, in tiny droplets begins to settle out. It can potentially start to run in a separate stream uh, in the pipe. Uh, during any, any prolonged winter shutdown, that water will freeze inside the pipe and, uh, and uh, can damage or obstruct our, uh, our pumps and our other equipment. Uh, it impairs the operation of our scraper pigs, which we use to keep the line clean so we can avoid corrosion in it. Um, that, that water issue is a serious one for us. And you can see the water settlement will increase. And this, by the way, is ice formation in flowing conditions. Last winter, I was concerned about it during a shutdown. As we decline, we're going to see that ice formation risk increase as we flow. Um, as flow declines, wax fallout in the pipeline also increases. Uh, wax, as you know, is, is, is not good uh, if it gets alongside the walls of your pipe. It can gel up and form on pipe walls, potentially complicate uh, um, pigging procedures, which are essential uh, to prevent corrosion. Uh, Betsy Haynes, uh, my all movements director uh, this winter, uh, uh, talks about being concerned about ending up with the largest tube of chapstick in the world. Okay, uh, that's what, what the potential consequence there is. So, it, and you get down, if you can look at the slide, you get down to 350,000 barrels a day flow without additional heat. Uh, surrounding ground, remember we're underground in places, uh, can become cold enough to freeze around our line. And if you know Alaska, you know the roads, in freezing conditions you get frost heaves. Well, if those frost heaves are working in an underground pipe, it becomes a real challenge and you risk substantial damage to that pipe. So the study outlined a lot of interventions and procedural changes you know, adding heat to the line, adjusting our pigging program, creating a ways to improve monitoring of our water, and we already started working on implementing some of these. But the adjustments to operate taps safely at declining throughputs will not be easy, fast, and they certainly will not be cheap. Uh, projects such as installing crude oil heaters, overhauling our pigging program, take considerable resources, both of people and financial investment by our owner companies. And, and the issue is this, at some point, the technical and the financial challenges will converge and they'll bring the viability of TAPS as it now exists into questions. In the shorter term, I think the risk, and I've told the folks up in the state this, is you'll see more shutdowns. Um, and by that I mean we, uh, we do some scheduled shutdowns in the summer. We have one coming up next week for about two days. But we do most of our maintenance while we're running oil. 
as these problems compound, the likelihood of having to do more extended shutdowns to avoid having problems with the line goes up. And I don't think, and that's not, certainly not good for the state, it's not good for our companies, I don't think it's good for the, for the country. The, the other things in the back of my head, and I just want to talk for a second, is, uh, you know, I have to ask you this, public policy, right? Even if we can successfully operate down at 350 or 300,000 barrels that flow in, in taps, is that really a good outcome? Is that a good outcome for this country, for our state? Um, I I'm, I'm obviously don't think it is. The other thing that uh, I live in a real world, uh, a lot of the policy debates, but um, you know, the operation, the real challenge with this stuff from an operator's point of view is that is what I call compounding complexity. Any one of these issues can be managed with some expense and some difficulty. When they start to come at you together at the same time, it gets very, very tough to operate successfully. And I think that gets lost on people. The challenge that an operator faces is managing what amounts to compounding complexity. And I think that's, that's rough on engineers. It can be done, but it will not be easy. And I think you run increased risk that we will be shut down longer to address those kind of problems. So it's also clear that when you look at this, the simplest and easiest way to address them is to stop the decline, S cut that off, and eventually, hopefully, re reverse it. We were designed to accommodate a lot more oil. We could readily move that oil today if we had it. Um, and so th I think that's uh, a problem for our nation uh, on a strategic level as well as for our pipeline. Um, you know, the urgency to me is, is uh, compelling. But the biggest obstacle, when I look at it, is, is not this. It's political will in Juneau. It's political will in Washington. Alaska, America has a lot of oil in the Arctic. Department of Natural Resources, someone cited, estimates there are 40 billion barrels of undiscovered recoverable oil on the North Slope and offshore Alaska. And, uh, you know, this just bleeding into a little my Alaska is not part of any cartel. Uh, we have stringent environmental controls in Alaska and in the United States. There's an urgent national need for energy uh, security and more economic opportunity and growth. And oil from Alaska can help answer that need and taps the infrastructure. This is a substantial piece of infrastructure is already in place and able to move it if we can get at it. Uh, I think the implications of this, and I see them play out. We're a little remote now, public policy. I just saw it play out here a couple of weeks ago with uh, uh, the administration released 30 million barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in response to rising gas prices and concern about uh, Libya and the Middle East. Well, if we were operating at a million barrels today instead of 600,000, you know, if the governor's goal, and I agree with Senator Murkowski, by the way, that ought to be a national goal to get us back up to a million barrels. But if we were operating at that today, we would be adding over what we're pushing today, 140 million barrels of oil a year. So that's four times, more than four times, what you had to withdraw from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. We would be pushing down into this country every year if we were at a million barrels, a place we could easily handle. So, so you know, you kind of ask yourself, I ask myself why we're not, and you should ask yourselves why we're not moving forward more aggressively to safely develop these resources. Uh, why do we remain dependent on some nations that don't share our values of human dignity or democracy, uh, values for the last 234 years that America has fought for, continues to bleed for today, by the way, and frankly, nations that don't meet the same level of environmental standards that we have here. Um, you know, I, I'm acutely aware, very acutely aware as an operator that we have to operate safely, that we have to act prudently all the time. But I also know I have to act 
And I would encourage you to think about the same thing. We need to be prudent, but we need to act. Um, you know, as I see it, we have oil in Alaska and America's Arctic. As a nation, we need more oil and the jobs and the balance of trade and the cost burdens uh, on the American public that that can impact. You have a pipeline in place that can safely transport that oil and at the same time actually needs more oil to remain viable in the long term. So to me, the answer is let's just fill it up, right? Let's just fill it up. Um, you know, I, I try to describe this uh, up in Alaska to folks, but, but I offer it to you. In a real sense, TAPS is uh, kind of like your car, right? Think about your car. You're driving, and the red engine light comes on on your dashboard. Uh, so you stop, and you check the oil. Uh, and you pull out the dipstick, and you look at it. And if the dipstick is below the add oil, add oil line, what do you do? You add oil, you know? Well, the TAPS dis dipstick is below the add oil line, okay? That's kind of where I am. So if it was your car and your engine, and it, you know, in a very real sense, it is. It is an engine for America. You would add the oil. And I have a lot of urgency about this. One of the cons I ha concerns I have, and I saw Pete's president, it takes years to bring a field on. It takes years, years to drill, delineate, explore, and move that oil into our line. And I'm concerned that we're already behind where we certainly would want to be. So, so that's kind of the picture we have. I also, and this is just opinion from me, I'll, I've been back in Washington this swing less than 36 hours, right? And in the time I've been here, this is just right, this is my opinion. I'm not speaking for Alieska on this, right? So I'll diverge here. It, but the public policy foundations behind some of these decisions just frankly look to me schizophrenic. I saw two newspaper articles in the day I've been here, right? The first one is the U.S. Department of Commerce has announced that they want to do expand offshore fish farming. Okay, and the rationale for that advanced, at least in the article, was that we're too dependent on foreign sources for fish. We want more American-supplied fish because seafood consumption is going up in the country. There's a whole balance of trade issue associated with that. And we don't want to be as dependent on places that don't have as stringent environmental controls in place as you do in the United States. Okay, so more American fish from places that have better environmental controls. That's, that's Department of Commerce's announced approach on this. And I'm sure it'll kick around for a while. It'll be controversial. Second story I saw was, uh, and I worked these issues when I was at DOT, the fuel supply, the uh, uh, mileage standards, right? They're working, EPA and the DOT working toward new uh, mileage standards for American automobiles to increase the, uh, the standard. And again, the rationale advanced by a White House spokesman the other day was the, the purpose here is to uh, lower costs for American consumers and reduce our dependence on foreign oil. Reduce dependence on foreign oil. Get resources from places that have low, don't get resources from places that have lower environmental standards. When you move it across to the picture we're looking at, I, I just don't see th those arguments seem to fade into the background somehow. I don't get it. There's a schizophrenia about developing American oil. Um, has to be done safely. Everybody understands that. Can be done well, but um, I think we need to do it. And from a pipeline operator's point of view, I'd really like to see it. So thanks very much. I appreciate the time and be glad to take your questions here. Well, thank you, Ed Barrett, for uh, um, a very interesting presentation and I think really drawing out some of the issues that We'll, I think we'll want to talk about here in the question and answer period. Um, and I would actually like to uh, take the, the pri you know, privilege here of asking the first question and drawing out your last statement a little bit about the matching 
between the development process that Pete was describing and your decline rate? And what's the thinking, I guess, both of you have about how does that play out? Um, you know, when, what's the time frame under which you get even more worried about the viability of the pipeline? And then, Pete, how, how soon do you uh, put uh, uh, oil back into the engine, I guess, it would be the, the best description. Sure, sure. I, I mean, I'll, I'll give you a, a swing from my perspective. Uh, the first objective I want is to stop the decline, right? Uh, so any source, if we're a common carrier pipeline, if people uh, deliver oil that meets our standards, we accept it if they have the connection requirements. So there are multiple options up there. There's state oil, more drilling in existing fields. There's an economic incentive issue there with the state of Alaska. Uh, there's uh, uh, potential out in CD5. Uh, there's potential, as uh, uh, Mead mentioned, the uh, state uh, starting to work offshore. But the onshore stuff in the existing fields is probably the most immediate resource uh, if you start drilling it out more aggressively. But even there, you're talking three, four, five years to bring substantial additional supplies online. Um, I think, uh, Pete, I'll let Pete talk to it, but you're talking uh, 10 years plus uh, for stuff uh, offshore uh, to uh, uh, find, delineate, uh, and then uh, build the infrastructure to get it to us. So. Uh, I think if you look out about 10 years, unless this is reversed, we're in, we're in bad shape. Uh, but, I, so, but it's two steps for me. Stop the decline with any, any, any way we can, as quickly as we can, and then hopefully reverse it with the type of numbers you'd see from offshore in Chukchi or Beaufort. So, um, yeah, and then I would agree with the Admiral. It's, uh, it's anywhere from 10 to 15 years before we're able to uh, uh, really say that we would have oil in the pipeline. This is a huge investment, uh, by the way, and I don't think it should be lost, uh, not doing a commercial for shell shareholders, but uh, it, is a, um, it is a big uh, investment. It's an example of patient capitalism, uh, but we like what we see out there, so we're in for the game. Our, um, I think a couple things I'd say. Our critical step is really doing the environmental work uh, that's going to backstop uh, any kind of uh, development. I, I believe this will probably be one of the largest and most complicated environmental impact statements that have been put together in North America. So we are requiring science to do, to do that work right now. The second point I'd like to make is that we have a significant pipeline that we would construct should we actually uh, have a discovery in the Chukchi, and, and we are strongly betting we will. It's a pipeline about half the size of the Trans-Alaskan pipeline from an anchor field, we, we think there's a good chance that could be our burger field, to either pump station one or two on, on taps. And so that's, that's significant in itself. It's a, it's a huge asset, and uh, these are all very, very big bets. Uh, it's a little bit of a, an easier row in uh, the Beaufort because we're literally at about, the, uh, at about the bottom of the pipeline. So our Beaufort Sea Prospects can jump on uh, existing infrastructure and uh, be ready to go. But that's probably closer to 10, and Chuck Chi is probably closer to 15. David, I'd say one of the most immediate new sources of oil for TAPS could be um, CD5 in the National Petroleum Reserve. And I mentioned the interest of the state of Alaska in working in a partnership with the federal government toward this million barrel a day goal. And I suspect when David Hayes is here at lunch, you'll hear about the work that the Interior Department is doing to help get NPRA into production. You heard the president uh, in a Saturday radio address talk about that uh, as something. And if we can lick the transportation problem of, of uh, 
getting the oil that has been found already that is ready to go into production in the taps, that, that is one positive thing that can be done. Uh, we, in terms of the near-term effort uh, with uh, oil and gas on state land, uh, we're very optimistic about what is happening with uh, ENI with a number of smaller independent producers. Uh, we have a revision of the state tax code pending in Juneau right now. We'll have another chance at it at the legislative session in January. But the entire focus there is to start looking at Prudhoe and existing state lands as having uh, the potential that it has to encourage more investment. So uh, as uh, Tom said, you're looking at political will in Juneau as well as Washington. In Juneau, we're trying very hard to be more competitive in attracting investment. The, the other question on the pipeline that uh, occurred to me is, I think you mentioned uh, at the time it was built, it was a capital cost of about, was it $8 billion? About $8 billion in today's yeah. dollars. So if you were to replicate that pipeline in today's world, do you have a sense of what that cost would be? Because in the energy world today, $8 billion doesn't sound like a lot. So yeah. it, it would be, uh, I'm guessing, a factor of four or five times that at a minimum. Yeah, just uh, everything has gone up. and. Uh, Okay. Take the first question here. In the first question here in the middle. Um, addition, additional hands so I can figure out who's next after that. Thank you. Uh, Brooks Yeager with Clean Air Cool Planet. And I'd like to say um, how delighted I am to see uh, a valued friend and co colleague in Mead Treadwell back here in Washington representing the state of Alaska. So glad to see you, Mead. Um, that said, I have a question for you. I am curious, uh, in light of Governor Parnell's goal of a million barrels, raising TAPS throughput to a million barrels, I'm curious about the state's leasing strategy. Why would you have a lease sale on October 26th that emphasizes probably small straddling pools on the border of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge or the NPRA, you've got in the NPRA a federal <coughs> landmass that is open to leasing. Uh, I designed the Secretary Babbitt's leasing program there, so I know about it. Uh, but where the USGS has said there's less oil than meets the eye, or at least than they thought there was there even four years ago. In the refuge, you have a federal land area that is closed to leasing until Congress says otherwise and which is a, the fate of which is, let's say, a battle of historic significance to the American environmental movement uh, and to many in the American public. So why would the state, which wants to raise TAPS throughput, focus on straddling stocks, straddling pools that might or might not require federal leasing in the NPRA or the refuge instead of focusing on something like the West Sackfield, which is in the middle of Prudhoe Bay and has 20 billion barrels of heavy oil in it. Thank you. Uh, I mentioned that this uh, lease sale October 26 is one of the largest, or it will be probably the largest in the country. I, I also mentioned that the uh, lease sale will focus on uh, heavy oil, on smaller, uh, un uh, smaller conventional pools, as well as the straddling stocks. I think the issue on ANWR is this, is that uh, if, if you take a look at what the American people say, many people say they don't support ANWR because they don't think Alaskans support it. Uh, 
Uh, I can tell you that uh, the last poll I saw showed over 70% of Alaskans support it and believe it can be done safely. Uh, you can hear the mayor of the North Slope Borough say that uh, the Alaska Native community supports it. Uh, we own some land uh, that has some of the same uh, reserves uh, as the federal government does. And Senator Murkowski has a bill that would allow exploration and production of those reserves from state land with directional drilling. Uh, perhaps this will get it started. We have to see if anybody wants to come with us to do it, uh, but it at least puts the issue on the table. Uh, but whether or not Anwar, uh, whether or not the Anwar lease, uh, the Anwar adjacent uh, areas are leased in this in this sale, we're doing everything we can to to make West Sac make some of the other uh, potential areas uh, uh, move and move more quickly. But but uh, we see no legal problem with drilling into into oil on our land. I have a quick sure. I, I think it makes sense to, to to find out what's there. I mean, you know, there there has been some drilling in Anwar in the 1002 area uh, on wells that are that are closed now. But uh, uh, to the extent that you can find economic reserves uh, um, in the state land adjacent to Anwar, uh, we believe it should be explored. Uh, and uh, if there is a method of getting into production that we can go to the American people and say, hey, we found your oil. Uh, uh, and uh, you have a way to develop it without uh, entering ANWR, uh, I think that's an option we should offer the American people, and that's, that's one of the things behind this lease sale. Um, and so I'll address it with respect to the uh, federal element. I, I think it has become a factor. I mean, obviously, uh, we've looked at putting a, or there's been a discussion about a second Chukchi Beaufort lease sale, and I'm wondering who's going to show up to that lease sale. Uh, with the amount of uncertainty, the amount of, uh, of uh, issues that people have in, in getting permits and actually being able to diligently pursue leases, I think there is a real issue, a credibility issue, uh, that the U.S. government uh, has uh, has taken upon itself, and I think uh, you know we talk about um, where we we're going to center our activities, and uh, I think there had been a, a pretty large uh, movement of, of folks trying to get into the U.S. and trying to find opportunities there in an area that's going to be relatively investment uh, friendly with regulations that are fixed and with uh, the rule of law. Capital is pretty fluid, and it can move to other places as well. So there is there is clearly issues. I mean, we we've now become a poster child. It's an honor we don't particularly want, <laughs> of uh, of perhaps bad government with respect to being able to uh, pursue these leases. So it it becomes an issue. 
yeah, question here, if you can wait for the mic when, sir, and then. Thank you. Uh, Robert Charetta with International Investor. Uh, I'm persuaded by the arguments of the country's energy needs and the going forth in the future. But my question is this, if, if allowed to develop these additional resources in Alaska or anywhere, how can we be assured that this oil won't flow to China or to Japan or to whoever uh, will be able to offer the highest bids? In nations like Norway and Russia, we see a tax regime where there's favorable taxation for energy that's sold domestically, but for all energy that's exported, there's a very high taxation rate that, by the way, helps supplement the Social Security funds in both those nations. How would uh, our two members from the private sector feel about that kind of taxation regime? I'll take the first run of that. Well, I'll take the first run of that. So I think there's, and I'll, I'll let Tom talk about the existing uh, infrastructure, but there there is protection under the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act about where oil and gas produced on federal leases can be sold. So that's, you know, that is incorporated into the Lands Act. It's it's a part of the lease terms. So I think there is a very, I mean, it, it's it, the plans right now are that this oil and potentially gas at a certain point from federal leases has to travel and be used in the U.S. And our oil and gas, the existing oil and gas from the state of Alaska, is a huge part of uh, the, the resources and energy sources for states of Washington, Oregon, California. Just a, just a simple add-on. If it's coming down taps uh, by law, it's, it's going to the United States. Our Pipeline Act, that legislation that got through Congress there in 77, it's going to domestic. If it's coming down taps, you'd have, if, under existing law, if you wanted to move um, production from the north uh, overseas, you'd have to, you'd not be able to use our infrastructure to do it. It would take a legislative change. Well, as one who fought for the right to uh, sell our oil and gas on world markets, I, let me just remind you what the argument was then. Uh, we, it cost at least the permanent fund of Alaska close to $15 billion when we had the TAPS ban, when we had more production uh, through TAPS on the West Coast than the West Coast could absorb. It forced the construction of uh, two pipelines to the East Coast, but still the uh, the net back, the, uh, the return was uh, far more expensive than necessary. Uh, we sell into an international market where, or I mean, prices are set internationally. And I think more production by the United States, even if we can gain more resources from sale, makes sense. But I guess I will say this, is that for what's happening now with the OCS and so forth, it is aimed toward U.S. Uh, uses. There is a deficit. We are importing oil in the West Coast right now. And we'd like to see that deficit fill. Thank you. Hi, I'm Tim Stryker uh, with the Command Earth Observation Satellites. Um, I'm actually detailed there from USGS. And while uh, oil and mineral exploration is not my area of expertise, I did want to ask uh, Mr. Slyby a question about his presentation because uh, on your slide you had said that the uh, uh, USGS report overlooks existing science, and I was wondering if you could maybe elaborate on that so I could bring whatever message I need to bring back to my colleagues in Reston. Well, it's, uh, 
So it's still early days in the USGS, and I guess I'd, I'd best describe it as a little bit disappointed in the uh, the results we saw. Although I, you know the volume itself speaks to the amount of science that is done, um, I think it runs 276 pages. But there were, and, and we are looking to try to get this more characterized, some gaps in the data that they've uh, that they've overlooked. Clearly, the private sector work that's been done. I think the uh, BOEM, or what was the MMS, had about 100 pages of studies that they have done. It's a, it's a catalog of about 100 volumes. So there has been, a, uh, I think, a, a, a substantial amount of work done on Arctic science in the Beaufort and Chukchi going over uh, decades and decades. Uh, more needs to be done when we're looking at development. I think we're, we're, we're very, very... Uh, uh, Behind that is a is, is a place that we want to go, but uh, where we do feel that the uh, the report did overlook some important things, and specifically, I will tell you some of the things we think the report does overlook is is met ocean data, and uh, it's absolutely critical uh, in working our uh, oil spill response plans, and uh, that's that's I think uh, given a little bit of short change in the report. Pete, one uh, point I'd like to follow up on as you're talking, you've talked a lot about the oil spill response, which I think is uh, appropriate, but are there other technological challenges that you face in developing these resources? Um, you know, we've, we've seen progress that's been made by Stott Oil in the Snowbeat field to do subsea completions, but I, uh, so that seems to be one type of technology, but do you see in these waters that you have any special technological challenges, or are they more logistical type challenges of making sure you've got the right uh, infrastructure of services that you'll need? So I think there's a, there's probably a little bit of both in there. Um, you know, there has been a body of work that's moved on on, on Arctic oil spill response, and, and certain things work better in the. I, I will say this: certain things are more problematic in the Arctic, and obviously, infrastructure and being able to get resources in place is something that has to be planned for and has to be covered with uh, some really uh, long thought about how you cover that contingencies. Um, obviously, you know, issues with working in broken ice, oil under ice, there's been technological uh, solutions employed on that, heating, for example, of the gathering lines to make sure you don't clog uh, oil skimmers in the Arctic. But there's also some helps. And a couple of the helps we're getting is the shallow water. We're in 150 feet of water versus the dynamic everybody saw in 5,000 feet of water on the condo, which means the oil is to the surface in a matter of seconds rather than hours. It means it's a fairly concentrated uh, uh, amount of oil which lends itself to uh, um, being able to be gathered. But I think there has been some good issue or good uh, solutions for McCondo. So. When I look at the capping system that was deployed at the end of July 2010 on Macondo, it was definitive. And I think industry moving, and we've seen this worldwide, not just the Gulf of Mexico, to get these capping systems designed, get them deployed, put them in place, followed by a level of containment, is a huge, huge improvement on uh, what we've seen with respect for exploration drilling. In a development scenario, when we have production, we'll need to employ other solutions as well. Well, let me um, turn then to some of the gas question that, uh, Mead, you had, uh, you had mentioned in yours. And a question we've raised in some of the presentations we've made here, because we've also followed the, the shale gas developments in the U.S., 
which is um, what do you do if you discover gas in the Arctic? Uh, right now, it seems like uh, that's probably not your, the thing you want to find. So what are our options to monetize gas that we would find in a place that's that remote, that far removed, that's going to be under tremendous pressure, at least in the United States, and if we um, believe the work that the Energy Information Administration has come forward with um, worldwide, um, uh, w the, the gas supply curve essentially has been pushed out by shale gas rather than having high-priced resources added at the end. So what, what do we do if we find gas instead of oil? And I guess, Pete, you might want to address that one, too. Well, it's, it's been Alaska's goal to see its uh, gas monetized since it was discovered in the, in the late 60s. But uh, one thing I should tell you is that we are monetizing the gas now in a particular way, is that the pressure it keeps up in the oil field has helped produce oil. Uh, considerably. So the, the fact is, is that the amount that you take out of the Prudhoe uh, Reservoir is, it, that's still an open question with our Oil and Gas Conservation Commission as, as far as how much should come out. But uh, it is very much in our interest and I believe in the national interest and I'd argue in the interest of several nations, Canada for one, uh, perhaps uh, nations in Asia, that we have natural gas infrastructure out of the Arctic. Uh, some of the, uh, let me just mention some of the things that are being tried right now. And I think what we're trying uh, reflects virtually all the, uh, you know, reasonable options. Uh, first off, under the, uh, uh, the, the state's program with TransCanada, uh, we in TransCanada uh, and Exxon are investing a considerable amount of money to go through the process of permitting an overland pipeline to the United States that may well serve uh, first markets in terms of producing more oil in Alberta, uh, as well as domestic U.S. markets. Uh, the economics aren't looking great right now, but if, if we, I, I mean, I've seen many gas projects start and stop uh, based on current economics, and as soon as they stop, the economics change. So uh, we're trying to see that as a long-term approach. Uh, in the tariff posted by TransCanada, they posted a tariff not just uh, for overland uh, to the United States, but they also posted a tariff uh, and had an open season and have said that they will have another open season, if necessary, for LNG export. Mm -hmm. And one thing that we're seeing in the Asian market, uh, especially after the tsunami and the, the challenge, there is a potential change in the LNG uh, market in Asia. And so for those who have been advocating LNG markets in Asia for Alaska Gas, and I've been one a long time, I can tell you there's a process in place right now. There is a, an open season process whereby the owners of the gas can work with a transporter, and uh, uh, we hope that process is used uh, if that's a more viable market. Third, the state has just uh, completed a study, a first-round study on a smaller pipeline, a 500 million uh, feet a day uh, pipeline that the state itself is considering uh, building or, or seeing, seeing built uh, with subsidy. And uh, it's, uh, the estimates are 2 to $3 billion in state equity. And uh, our legislature begins hearings on that later this month. Uh, finally, and I just I, I would say that there are several different proposals to begin to export parts of, uh, or you know, market parts of North Slope gas off the North Slope directly, either by truck down to Fairbanks or by uh, uh, ship export in the case of uh, propane or LPG. And uh, uh, another entity within the state of Alaska has been working on that right now. I thought it was of great interest this, uh, this winter when Korea Gas announced that they're looking at uh, 
buying McKinsey Delta gas from the Canadian Beaufort uh, to be shipped by LNG uh, uh, through the Bering Strait to Korea. And I think it should also be of note to the United States that uh, this year the Russians have announced eight gas condensate tanker shipments from Murmansk all the way in the western part of Russia through the Bering Strait to China. And, uh, you know, the idea that the Arctic Ocean may end up being an ocean-carrying energy uh, among international markets, uh, uh, we just need to look at what's happening uh, in Norway right now, what's happening in Russia, what's expected to happen in, in parts of Canada to, to realize that uh, there are opportunities there as well. Uh, the very last thing that has been studied uh, somewhat extensively, not as much in terms of North Slope value added, but a number of uh, uh, this 500 million foot a day bullet line is basically contingent on both the market for domestic use in Alaska as well as some sort of value added or export proposition. Uh, the LNG plant that has been the longest serving provider of LNG in the Asian market right now is uh, going into mothballs without a new gas supply, so that could help it. But we've also shut down our gas fertilizer plant and some of the other value added prospects may uh, may depend on this short shorter pipeline going forward. So all those options are on the table and, and uh, uh, I'd say the federal government, this is one place where the national government and the state government are committed to working together. Um, so I guess from, from Shell's perspective, maybe there's a few things. Uh, first of all, I mean, we, we are in Alaska and we believe that uh, we are looking at oil, so we're uh, We've gone in there and exposed the money and bid the leases based on oil, and we still believe that to be true. But I'll come at the uh, I'll come at the uh, unconventional gas, shale gas, coal bed, methane from a different point of view, and maybe a little more optimistic. So, eventually, it becomes a market mover. And when one looks at the opportunities with respect to aging coal-fired power plants, when one looks at the issues that people have seen in Japan and Germany, for that matter, with respect to nuclear solutions, there, there may well be, um, you know, we've, we, we're given the dynamics of July 2011, it's probably not going to be the dynamics of July 2012, it won't be the dynamics of 2014. So things will move, and eventually our preference obviously will be to uh, be able to market our gas and the gas that we, because we have found gas in significant quantities in places like the Chuck GC. I think when one is looking at the investments that we will be doing and uh, the, the price line right now for the gas pipeline, the conventional gas line that Mead, is, uh, Mead was talking about, is something like 30 to $40 billion. And to make those investments, you will want to have every molecule in place to assure that you've got a, a production stream that can pay that off. And so it, this could dovetail very nicely into a gas picture. I'm, you know, we, we've got a big gas um, uh, uh, development initiative at Shell. We're very excited about what we see in North America and other re uh, regions, and we're going to work that. But I don't think it's exclusive about what could eventually happen with uh, offshore gas in Alaska. Uh, Ensign Pettuccini with Navy Energy Coordination Office. This is mostly to Mead Treadwell. You mentioned the importance of Law of the Sea ratification. How much do your current plans hinge on a ratification of the Law of the Sea? And also, if it were to get ratified, how much more oil and gas do you think we could get? 
That's a, that's a very good question. Let, let me just say that uh, the state of Alaska supports ratification of the law of the sea. Uh, we, we see a few immediate benefits of defining our borders in the same way that we're here in Washington asking for more regulatory certainty in our permitting process. And Brooks, one thing I failed to mention, I, I, I guess Brooks is gone. Oh, there, there he is. But, uh, you know, we, we put up NPRA uh, in one administration uh, under Secretary Babbitt, and we're now trying, working very hard with the current secretary to actually see the oil discovered come into market. Uh, on the law of the sea issues, we're working to see with the State Department uh, to see the border ratified with Canada, uh, because right now we have a, uh, have a question about what the maritime border is, and that affects about 5,500 to 6,000 square miles of, uh, of uh, a pie slice of land in the, Bar in the Beaufort Sea. So we think that certainty would be helpful. Uh, to the extent that any of these prospects go outside our 200-mile limit, and that may not be the near term, but it could be the midterm. Uh, it's important for us to know what our extended continental shelf is. So we think that regulatory certainty is important. I'll also say that under Law of the Sea, it gives us also greater certainty with regard to our fisheries, with regard to environmental regulation in uh, traditional ice-covered areas, uh, and with regard to shipping and uh, uh, you know freedom of navigation. And so for all those issues, we feel it's very important to ratify Law of the Sea. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, the state of Alaska, our governor, our past governor, uh, Go Governor Palin, uh, all have been in support of this. Thank you very much. Susan Farrell, PFC Energy. I had a question about the, the lease sale and some of the economics of what you'd be offering as well. Because it seems you're focusing on the marginal. So the two areas next to federal lands, the small fields, 50 to 100 million barrels, unconventional gas, which is very low prices, and then heavy oil. So my question would more be on heavy oil. If there's a problem heating the pipeline now, wouldn't it be a lot bigger if you were putting heavy oil through it? And what would be the economics of the heavy oil in the current environment in Alaska? Well, let me start out by saying I think we're going to see viscous oil, uh, more viscous oil moving before the so-called heavy oil. Um, we've been, uh, in, in our discussions in Juneau on tax policy and so forth, I think there's a very strong interest in seeing the viscous oil move from Prudhoe Bay. And you could get as much oil out of Prudhoe Bay as we've already produced uh, with probably about 2,000 more holes. Uh, focusing on viscous oil. Now, that's a substantial investment, and I think part of that is contingent on state tax policy, and it's one of the reasons why we're, uh, we're arguing for some change in state tax policy right now, and it's uh, high on the governor's objectives. Uh, in terms of focusing on the other smaller fields, one of the things that we've seen with the majors who, are, who have developed Prudhoe Bay and Kapark and so forth, uh, there's, there's leases at the edge of those fields that are unitized with the Prudhoe Bay fields but aren't explored. Uh, and we're hearing from some other smaller or newer in investors in the, in the region and, you know, newer investors bringing numbers like $500 million to the table that uh, maybe some reunitization around the edges of Prudhoe Bay would make sense to, to see some of these smaller but conventional fields uh, come to play. And that's oil that could go easily into the pipeline now. Uh, a focus on uh, the, the other issues. 
undoubtedly are related to economics, but one thing that is promising to us about some of the foothills gas, for example, and the Gubic gas, is that's gas that may not need to be conditioned as expensively as the Prudhoe Bay gas. It may be gas that if we're trying to support a smaller pipeline to get some gas moving to market, may, be, may make the economics of a smaller pipeline much, uh, you know, much more uh, appropriate. And so uh, we felt as a matter of state policy to put all of this land on the table for leasing, to, to do as much as we can to encourage new investment in the state. And frankly, we're aiming at many different kinds of investors uh, uh, to, to respond to that lease sale and to drill out uh, areas that are already leased. There, there are any um, final questions for the, for the panel? Well, uh, I want to thank you very much for uh, all of these presentations. They were really uh, excellent, gave a tremendous overview and set the stage for the discussions we'll have for the rest of the day. So please join me in uh, giving them a special thanks.